A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello and welcome to the 97th episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, the host that you're listening to this very second, and maybe you'll be eating some seaweed pretty soon. I think you'll be eating a lot of seaweed soon and you're going to like it. It's going to be tasty. It's going to be healthy for you and it's going to be saving the planet. It's going to be sustainable. It's going to be cheap. Oh, it's great. So that's why I have on Brent Smith. He's the author of a book called Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer. So that's what Brent is. He's a restorative ocean farmer. He farms and grows things in the ocean like seaweed, oysters, uh, all kinds of stuff. So we, we talk a lot about that and why Growing things like that in the ocean is kind of better than fishing or like a fish farm or something like that. And the benefits that go come with, you know, an ocean farm, like uh, taking carbon out of the water and the air. And uh, you can, all these things you can do with seaweed too that you wouldn't even think of just because we're not using them right now, like feeding seaweed to cows as uh, like livestock feed and it reduces the methane emissions from cows, which is messing up the global warming issue. So, Man, there's just so much stuff. It's it's so fun. We kind of talk about how to start your own underwater farm and become a, an ocean farmer if you want to. Green Wave is Bren's company who helps with that. So it's a really, really interesting, fun episode that really gets me excited for the future. So without further ado, let's get to the episode with Bren Smith. All right, Bren, we're going. How you doing, man? Good. Great to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, heck yeah. Excited to talk because I've, I've been through your book, read the whole book. I got it freaking, you know, all marked up and all this crazy stuff. And I, I mean, eat like a fish. It wouldn't have normally gotten me probably. I'm not a fisherman. I'm not, I don't eat seaweed, you know, yeah. never, never heard of this stuff, but damn your story, dude. And it's what you're doing is so exciting to me and, and I have no background in it. So it's, it's awesome. Oh, thanks so much. It was a, um, uh, definitely the only book I'll ever write. My, <laughs> my favorite review, some guy said, God, I feel bad for his mother. <laughs> yep. That's about right. Right, man. Well, congrats on, on writing a book and getting through it. I I'm, I'm never writing one. That's for sure. <laughs> um, and also, man, great. I gotta say great color on the book. I, I always take the book jackets off this, this green and blue here. Great choice. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, I figure we'll just dive into your story a bit and, you know, kind of get started, but cause you, you started off as kind of just a, a classic deadliest catch style fisherman, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I grew up in Newfoundland, right. Which is the ed- edge of the, like literally it was the most Eastern point in North America. And, um, sorry about that. Ah, sorry about that. No um, um, so it was, uh, yeah, it's edge of the earth. And like, you know, I mean, it was before deadliest catch in that this was the uh, idyllic artisanal fishery. Like I grew up next to a fisherman's co-op, um, red, green, you know, orange houses painted literally with leftover boat paint. And we'd always say like, oh, you painted that so you can find your, so you can find your way home drunk in the fog, you know? Right. <laughs> and, you know, we used to sell cod tongues door to door, you know, flakes like, Everything that every little Brooklyn foodie wants out of sort of the food wonderland fetish, sure. right? That's how I grew up. But um, uh, but my heroes were were really fishermen. I mean, it was 
And I thought through my life, you know, as I was doing the book, wondering why, you know, like, oh, yeah, tough and all this stuff. But there's something else. And it's really that, you know, you see them go out in the, on the horizon, their boats, they have no bosses, mm-hmm. self-directed lives, succeed and fail on your own terms, and this pride of feeding your country. And I think that just, that seeped into me deep and not in a conscious way. Like if I look at my life, I was always like, nope, no bosses. <laughs> yep. Like not doing it, right? Um, I want a job that I'm proud of. You know, like these, you rack them up. And so over my, the trajectory of my life, I look back like the measure of success is did I end up in a job that retains the soul of a fisherman? Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean that you just kind of grew up around that. That was kind of your, your lifestyle. That's what people did. And, and so that's kind of just how you fell into it sort of almost. Right. Yeah. 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 I wasn't like in, you know, uh, sophomore English, English class and read a book and was like, yes, I'm going to Alaska and a walkabout, you know, it sure. wasn't that. It was like just in my blood, but yeah. So I fished there and then, um, I headed, uh, uh, my parents headed to, down to the States Mm-hmm. And I tried that and I, it did not go well. Like I dropped out of high school almost immediately. Okay. Um, man, the suburbs are a violent place. Mm. <laughs> like, sure. They're like just some sick fucking people, the sub- suburban kids, you know? <laughs> so I just went out to the fishing boats. I was like, no, uh-uh, these people are crazy. Right. They're just okay. like, they're cruel. It's a cruel bunch. you know. Yeah, man. No, so I mean the that was just your world. That's what that's where you fit in was you know fishing and but uh, so you're doing that. But what I mean, how does that kind of uh, I guess come to an end or what? What are the issues with that? Sure. So um, you know, I was fishing in Gloucester, and then I headed to the Bering Sea, which is like the next step up, right? You know, for a, for a young fisherman, and that's when I met industrial fishing. Right? Okay, and this was the late '80s. And, you know, huge trawlers, like, you know, humans get too good at what they do. And we got too good at fishing. Um, And uh, it was clear that this wasn't sustainable. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like, yeah, if you've got a 10 year plan and you're going to fish every fish and then get out. Yeah, it's a good plan. But if you want to die in your boat one day, if you want to like you fish for 50 years and hand it over to your kids, there's just no way. Um, And uh, the younger generation, we knew it. Um, uh, we love those jobs though. Like I still miss being a pillager, right. Mm-hmm. You know, because not cause it was pillaging, but like, you know, that humility of being in 30 foot seas, you know, working with 13 other people for months at a time in the belly of a boat, right. There's just nothing like it. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's that conflict of like the coal worker loving your job, but knowing and learning over time, how problematic it is. And just that conflicted heart. Ooh. So. Then the cod stocks crashed for me back in Newfoundland. Like I was in Alaska, 30,000 people were thrown out of work. And that was the wake up call for me. Largest layoff in Canadian history. Wow. And it was like overnight. And I think that's where you learn. That's where I was like, oh, there are no jobs on a dead ocean. You know, like it took hundreds of years to build up this economy. It disappears overnight. And I'm looking around and there's like hungry ghosts just wandering the streets with no meaning and, and, and no, no livelihood. Damn. So, um, so yeah, that, I think that was the end of fishing for me was that, that first ecological collapse. And so, yeah, what was kind of the, the actual cause of that? Was it just like overfishing doing too much? Yeah, it was over. I mean, it's definitely overfishing. I mean, the heartbreaking thing, it wasn't like, 
the small day boats coming out of Petty Harbor that were, you know, pill- pillaging the ocean, right? You know, yeah. they're literally digging for cod, one cod at a time, maybe a couple nets in, stuff like that. It was that the shape of the Grand Banks, it's called the head and the tail. It goes like this, and international waters sits just like you can be on the tail of the Grand Banks and still in international waters, and the codfish follow the edge of that shelf. Okay. And so all the boats would sit just at international waters and just clean up. And they were the same fish we were catching inshore. And then they started coming further in. And it was, you know, it was brutal. Even inshore, you know, the Canadian government was subsidizing all the huge fleets for all sorts of, you know, political reasons, so like that. Mm. So, yeah, we just, you know, we fished out the fish. There's no question about it. Man, shit. How depressing for like, for when you're doing something like maybe your family's done it for, yeah, like hundreds of years, like you said, and then for it to just be kind of taken over by these other massive companies or whoever they are. Totally. And there are two stories that you hear told in Newfoundland and it's, and they both have like this, that subtext, that meaning that you're saying. One is about, you know, is this about money? So it's about an old guy that gets paid out by the government to beach his boat. They take his, they buy his permit, like a lot of money, like a really fair deal. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he buys a new truck and every morning he drives down to the docks to drink himself to death. Like this isn't about money. And then the other story people tell is the fish plant that was taken over from a a New York entrepreneur, right. was going to come up and reemploy everybody. And people were all excited. And then they found out that the job was making seatbelts for pets. And like, that story is like, we don't want any job, right? Uh, what? <laughs> like, we want jobs with purpose, right? Like, and talk about like existential meaningless, like making poodle car seats or whatever the hell it was. You know? Right. <laughs> well, maybe you save some poodle lives, you know? Yeah, yeah. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Okay. So w- what kind of, what do you do after that? How, how do you find, you know, your next thing in life? Yeah. So... The, we were sold as a, as a sort of young generation of fishermen. The next thing was aquaculture mm. and that was farming fish. And that was supposed to, you know, protect fish stocks and feed the planet and create all these new jobs. It was like, you know, fisherman 2.0. And so I went, I went to, uh, I tried to go to school for it and, um, but I didn't, I like, showed up to the graduate school. I remember I bought a suit and I went there and they had new aquaculture schools for graduate students. And so I went and um, I still I still hadn't finished my undergrad. And they um, uh, they were like, you haven't taken math, science, like any of this. Like, no, not even close. So then I went to work on the farm. So I worked on the, the salmon farms. And honestly, it was terrible. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just like fish, just, you know, you just gluttonous things that don't look like fish. They don't taste like fish. And, you know, the industry took all the lessons, the mistakes of land-based farming, like pig farming, and just moved it out to sea. Pesticides, waste, you know, all these things. And now aquaculture is still the worst brand name in the grocery store. Um, Now it's tried. I've got many friends in the industry and are trying to trying to do it, um, you know, make it better, but it's still in essentially environmental R and D stages. So I left the salmon farms pretty disillusioned. Um, uh, but began asking this basic question, which is like, what's unique about the ocean as an agricultural space? Like, okay, I was a hunter gatherer. I got moved into farming. It was bad farming. 
And so, but the question is like, okay, is there something unique that where we don't just grow around wild taste? Like, so we don't grow salmon and tuna just because people want to eat them. Let's ask the ocean, what do you want us to grow? What makes sense? And when you ask the ocean, what does it make sense to grow? It says really simply, why don't you grow things that don't swim away and you don't have to feed? Right. Right. Really simple. Yeah. And it makes for like cheaper business because you don't have overhead costs, right? You know, there's no big structures, there's no nets, you don't have to. And as soon as you make it make that conceptual shift, it changes everything in the water. Um, and you really begin, it opens up a whole new frontier of agriculture, at least for me, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, damn, that sounds great. But like, was that kind of stuff? And this is like, you're, you're talking about now kind of growing like, like seaweed or, or an oyster farm or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So because what happened was I left the salmon farms and I chased a woman, not like chased inappropriately, just like she wanted, she wanted me to come, (laughs) but ended up in, in Long Island Sound in outside of new haven like the weirdest place for a newfoundlander to end up um and so i was lost just trying to search of uh, what to do i'll never forget my first day it was the suburbs of connecticut i showed up and she was sitting in my car in an old car and i went to pay for gas inside and the, a cop came and asked her came up to her knocked her window and said are you okay ma'am and I was like, I was, I'd been in the suburbs for like four hours. Yeah. <laughs> it was, anyway, that was my experience with Connecticut's house. Sorry, but it turned out in Long Island Sound, there was this incredible hundreds of years of history of shellfish. And it's a, just a totally different world. So I was like, hell, I'll become a shellfishman. I'll become an oysterman. And this was early 2000s. And um it was just the beginning of like boutique oystering, right? You know, where you began to hear in Brooklyn that there were brands and the chefs began using them and stuff. Um, but I thought it was going to be easy. And I was the worst. I killed millions and millions of oysters. I was running a death camp. Like I couldn't say I was a farmer. <laughs> it was like I was a funeral director. I take all these beautiful little seeds over this big and then just kill them. And it was cruel. I grow them up like from here to like this big and then kill them. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so close. I was so because it's a different set of skills. You know, a blue thumb right. where you're you're cultivating you're sort of encouraging, you're working with the waters to sort of grow this thing as opposed to, you know, going and like getting excited about clubbing a cod over its head because the grunt it makes, you know, it's like, it's just a different, a different kind of life. Right. Yeah. So, but there were already people doing this and, you know, they had kind of, they had, they had learned how to make it, make it happen at least. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, you know, what I do with, you know, regenerative ocean farming, it's just a, I'm a moment in this 3000 year history. I mean, indigenous communities in the Pacific Northwest were actually the first, what I think of as ocean farmers, um, they were creating clam walls. So they create these walls to collect clam seed and then nurture and use certain kind of muds and stuff to grow clams. And that's, you know, that was early, early cultivation. And in here, people have been oystering for, yeah, like, you know, two, 300 years. And so I just sort of hopped into this tradition and then just tried to figure out how to how to do some uh, innovation in it. Yeah, right. No, nice that it's already you know you you found this. It kind of like hit those requirements of what you were looking for. But why why was it so hard? You know, to get into it. What were the issues with it for you? Well, I mean, one, it was boring as hell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like 
you just, you, it's like a seven minute ride out on your boat to this flat <laughs> little area of water. And you turn off your engine and then you're just like in these 20 acres all day. And then you go home and sleep in your bed. Like, you know, like, and so it really was a change in my nervous system, you know, where it was like slow and steady. It wasn't about thrill. It was like the thing about fishing is you never know what's going to come over the gunnel. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and there's just a real excitement to that. And the ocean is just such a complex, beautiful and magical place. You know what? It, but like, I always knew what was going to come up, you know, like in my cages and stuff like that. So, you know, I had to, I had to change and I, I, it took, it took a while, but over time I really fell in love with it. I fell in love with sort of the, 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 the sort of steady and the, the, there's real, there isn't like pride in catching a fish. Maybe if you're like, you know, a recreational fisherman in some context, but like, it's not the same thing. Like you're not, it's not like you grew this fish, right? But there's incredible sure. pride when you see, when you've like shaped the cup of an oyster to exactly what you want, right? Through tumbling, or there's incredible pride of pulling, you know, 15 foot walls of seaweed out that started as just microscopic and you've been, you know, working it all year. So, um, uh, so yeah, that was, that was, that was the journey. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I would never have really thought of that perspective where how fishing would just be so much more exciting, but farming's a bit of a, you know, it's a, it's the retiree's hobby of choice. Yeah. I hang out with freaking arugula farmers. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> drink tea, you know, I get beat up. Like if I went to the crow's nest and stuff, I just get, I get beat up, you know, like best case I get laughed out of the bar. <laughs> 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 okay so you but you kind of get into it um and then so are you able to kind of like how does that progress what are you what are you growing you know yeah. how how are things going with that sure so i started with oysters and learned there and like built a successful business a business and started like a you know equivalent of a csa uh, you know, community supported um, uh, agriculture. So this was community supported fisheries where mm -hmm. people would come and buy a share of the farm and um, was selling a lot in Brooklyn and things like that. So I was successful, but then, and so I just got to that point that was like seven years in or something. Um, and then hurricane Sandy and Irene came in two years in a row and wiped me out. One year's one thing you're like, Oh, crappy year rebuild. Uh, but two years in a row, you just realize this is the new normal. Mm -hmm. And that was like, you know, once again in my life, I found myself at the sort of a canary in the coal mine of an ecological crisis. This was supposed to be a slow lobster boil climate change, right? hundred years. So you thought it was completely here and now. And I think that's what the rest of the country is waking up to now. Like this is not a 20, 20, uh, uh, 2100 problem. This is um, uh, here now in a serious way. So those of us in the water experience, I mean, there's no lobster in Long Island Sound because they all move north. Like fishing is just uh, completely dead. Water temps have gone up. Like, you know, we see all these new species. It's just happening so, so fast. But so, you know, after Irene and Sandy hit, that's where it was a moment for me where I just had to decide, like, am I going to get pushed off the water or am I going to uh, figure out a way to stay? Right. And um, we were really depressing. It was hard. Um, I actually pushed myself like right after one of the storms, I went out too early and my, my block boat broke on my boat and I got blown up on the rocks. Coast Guard had to come. Like I was just out there trying to save the farm. Um, 
But after that, and this is what gives me a bit of hope for humanity, like in crisis, backs against the wall is maybe where humans are at our best. Mm. Like, let's hope, right? And so I just had this choice and like just to figure out, okay, what, you know, how do you farm in the era of climate change? And that's where I began really shifting and changing my farm over time. I lifted it off bottom in order to ste- like deal with those mud storm surges that came in. I started growing species, all different species year round, all shellfish and seaweeds so that I'd have a crop every season. And seaweeds I picked because it was post hurricane season. It went in in November and December as a winter crop. And then I harvest in the spring. So just really trying to think like, what's the architecture and design in the age of climate change? And I'll give another example. Like farms are, our farms are really simple, right? It's just um, uh, anchors with some ropes going up to the surface and then horizontal lines um, just below the surface, right? So rope scaffolding, think of it that way. And then we hang our, uh, we, we seed our, our, um, uh, seaweeds and it grows on the lines uh, uh, like uh, vertically downwards and we've got mussels and mussel socks and scallops and these things called lantern nets and then oysters and clams but um, one of the keys is not to over design in the ocean like it's a very unfriendly place to grow and so one thing we learned was like be a willow not an oak right so don't try to like the storm come through, comes through and ha- make sure everything's so strong it could handle anything. You're never going to fight the ocean. Let everything sink and bend under, uh, like underwater and then let it pop back up. And that's an architecture. That's like designing with nature, right? Sure. I think that was a really, you know, I never think of myself as a designer or something, but that, that became a core, core concept. And then just accepting that your farm is going to get destroyed sometime. Mm-hmm. and work that into your business model. And that means, okay, keep overhead low. Like pick crops where overhead is low. Make sure your gear isn't that expensive because you're just, you're building volatility in, 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 into your business model. And I think this is what I'd recommend a lot of other industries do this same thing because you're not going to like fight against climate change, right? You just yeah. need you, business models that handle volatility. Right. So was that kind of the, uh... Was that kind of the big innovation, at least for you, was to kind of get it to where it could coexist and with these storms and things and, and, and survive and and also the idea that you would have crops kind of year round? Yeah. And it was, you know, there are other things like being able to designing it so we could lower the lines into colder waters. So like if we get huge spikes in temperature, I lower the lines. So I'm sitting down there so I don't get early biofouling where it doesn't die, right? And then being able to raise it so I can actually store it underwater, right, during these peaks. That's another, um, uh, uh, would, would be another example. But one of my biggest fears is can I stay ahead of this climate curve, right? Um, uh, and this is where I just need to team up with scientists um, all the time. It's really, really key because I will not be growing the same species, I'd say, even a decade from now. Really? Uh, yeah, like my kelp, I grow it at the southern region right now of its of its natural habitat. Well, that's moving north. Now, we can create more climate-resilient kelps, but like it's just eventually here, it's not going to work. So I'm going to find new species and that's harder than it sounds there. I mean, there are 10,000 plants in the ocean. There's something we can grow everywhere, Mm -hmm. but 
can we make it economically viable for the farmer to make a living with that particular crop? We figured that out with our shellfish and seaweeds, but like, you know, those, you know, people are like, you know, be climate resilient by growing nori. Well, that's a very complicated question, right? Right. Yeah. From the farmer perspective. Yeah. So when you're, when you're figuring out these, uh, you know, to, to kind of grow things like the seaweed, you know, vertically or whatever, is that just you drawing the stuff on like a, a napkin or how's that, how's that process work? No, no. I, I just steal from everybody. Sure. Like individual inspiration is just a total myth, right? right. I mean, it's <laughs> total, like the whole idea of the entrepreneur and all this stuff, like give me the bank robber, you know, <laughs> like that's the word or like the idea robber or whatever. That's actually what's going on. And so, um, uh, you know, I just have a long lineage of people that I've, I've learned from sort of brainstormed with, you know, what you need in order to innovate is a network of people to be in con- continual conversation with who are like experts in different pieces of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Dr. Charlie Arish, who's down here, he's an expert in seaweed farming um of kelp so it was like that was absolutely key for then incorporating that into my vertical farm right and he came to my wedding right he's like a dear dear friend now we've been on this journey and now you know there are things that i do that um uh you know so i can bring some new things to the industry um that that he hasn't seen so i've got a so i'd say a broad network um but you do obsess like there is no moment i'm not thinking about ways to tweak the farm, because that blue collar innovation is what's really fun, right? Mm-hmm. Like the great thing about being in the water is you get to be an engineer, right? You get to be a farmer you get to be a citizen scientist. Like you need all, you know, you need, you need finance and business skills. Like you, you need to group all these together. And, um, uh, uh, and it's, it makes it a pretty creative occupation, I think. Right. So how, uh, how does this come, how does like ocean farming compare to like land-based, you know, farming or agriculture? Why, why are you doing all this stuff in the ocean? Yeah. I mean, it is a stupid place to grow food, right? Underwater. Cause like, think about it. I can't control my soil. Right. Like it turns over a thousand times a day. It's the most unstable place to grow food on the planet. And, um, I can't see what I can grow, what I grow. <laughs> Which is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, like I've got to actually go, what am I going to lift up every inch of the farm every week? You know, to inspect, like I can't just walk my fields and be like, oh, there are slugs coming. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can't, or whatever the freaking kale farmers are worried about. I got no idea. Um, uh, so um, uh, that's a, um, it's just a huge challenge on the flip side, you know, we, there are zero inputs, no fresh water, no fertilizer, no feed, which is just so efficient. All I need to do as a farmer is find that nutrient sweet spot for each species in the water column, right? Um, uh, and just like add and subtract buoys and things like that. Um, so it makes a lot of sense, a uh, lot of sense there. I'll say one thing that's happened to me, who's become increasingly anti-technology um, as like, you know, t- the technology comp- companies have become the old, new tobacco companies, you know, like we all think we're in this direction, but I've now concluded technology is absolutely s- essential because I can't augment the soil. So we rely heavily on sensor technology, ROVs, all sorts of stuff to track what's happening in the water. Because like a two degree difference of when I plant my seaweed, say, 
will translate into like a third higher yield. Wow. Like it's just stunning the way it happen it happens. And so um uh right now with Greenwave, our nonprofit, we're working on this farmer dashboard, which will actually upload live data for for every farm, mm-hmm. which will be really, really key because right now as a farmer, I don't know how much folks know about the ocean, but we have to rely on NOAA buoys, which are like hundreds of miles off, right? They're millions of dollars. And like to get wind, wave, water temperature, stuff like that, it's just not, I need to know exactly in this, you know, hectare of water, what's going on. Right. Um, and allow for that precision farming. So we've become big fans of technology. One of the things that's interesting for us is can we, so like, We've created these data platforms where we're, in, we're, we're, we're installing sensors, we're maintaining them, we're doing physical data collection ourselves, and all that data has value. Can we create a harvestable data that we can sell? Right? Oh. And this is another piece of climate resilience. Like Everybody thinks farming food, and instead we need climate resilience is about, to me, like, what are all the different income streams you can create off of this patch of water? And, and data is one. Like, do the insurance companies want that data to mitigate their risk, to know exactly? Like, we, I have a friend who has a sensor, for example. It predicts, um, uh, it predicts uh, tidal heights with 30% more accuracy than NOAA, NOAA data. Stunning, right? So imagine if every if we just distributed a thousand ocean farms all as data points, we pool that data and we have, and that's another crop that we harvest. Right? Yeah, that's very cool. That's yeah, something that you wouldn't even you know initially think of, but hell yeah, it's so obvious when you when you yeah. kind of get into it. Mm-hmm. Man, that's very cool. And then so, uh, I mean, you you mentioned it, but I I just think it's so amazing how you can. You, you're what? Just kind of put seeds down there and then you you don't have to water it. You don't have to put, you know, nutrients or anything or all this stuff. It just sort of grows itself. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, the kelp just soaks up carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sunlight. And it just makes it so easy. Like, I wish it was more complicated. I'd s- sound smarter. But it's just like really, really simple. There's some tricks and stuff like that. And, you sure. know. You need the right patch of water. But um, uh, uh, as, again, when you make that psychological shift of being like, what's special about the ocean? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is that you can grow zero and put food. And that's going to be so key. Like, yeah, seaweed's disgusting, right? But I guarantee people are going to be eating it because of the climate economy, right? Like as water prices go up, feed, fertilizer prices go up, land gets more scarce and more expensive. More and more of the land has been like you know sucked dry of nutrients. Prices are going to go up. We're already seeing this for land-based food. Well, zero input food is going to be the most affordable food on the planet at some point, and that's going to move it to the center of the plate. Um, it's why I actually have real confidence. You know, I don't eat seaweed. I, you know, my wife does. I'm, I'll never go there. But um, but there. But I I do believe that you know. Uh, taste does shift around around uh, affordability. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, because we should, because um, you mentioned this before too about how we're there's like you know fish farming or whatever. We're kind of growing fish because that's what people want to eat, 
right? Yeah. That's just kind of what the market demands. Yeah. But you took it, you're taking it from a different angle of like, well, let's kind of tell the market what's cheaper and, you know, also healthy for them and that kind of stuff. Exactly. And like, think about what the market is demanding. The market is demanding uh, 20th, 20th century food, right? Yeah. You know, we need a whole new climate cuisine that is built around what the earth can provide in these, these, um, uh, uh, climate conditions within, um, uh, you know, a deeply destable political environment globally, right? Like all this sort of stuff is going to, is going to affect, uh, uh, food. And so I don't care what markets say. (laughs) All I do, I care what the ocean says and what it'll provide. And then um, it's not like markets will follow, but like me following markets is definitely not the answer because the ocean's just going to be like, I don't care if you want that. <laughs> that's right. not what's better, right? You know, that, that's just like, um, but one of the reasons, I, mean, I don't want to, I mean, so the challenge with some of dealing with taste is that it's slow, right? To shift taste. Mm-hmm. Yep. Question. And we don't have a lot of time, right? I mean, we know that we get like nine, 10 years to seriously reformat. The food system, um, and one of the reasons I like uh, kelp is that it can be used for so many things. So um, uh, my my harvest last year was used for you know cute little Brooklyn things like you know pickles and you know keem cheese, but it was used in plant based burgers, um, and then a whole section of it was used for fertilizer and compost. Yeah. Right. Because farmers need all these things that are in the water, nutrient, you know, micronutrients, the nitrogen, stuff like that. I can soak it up with my kelp and bring it to them as, as, as uh, soil additives. Um, and in fact, that's great model for me because the longer I leave my kelp in the water, the more things that grow on it, mm-hmm. the more nutrients that are. So think of it, it's almost like being mixed. The, the fertilizer is being mixed naturally on the farm. Right. It like added value every time a sea squirt attaches and grows and epiphytes and stuff. Um, and then the third market I'm doing is um, a bioplastics, which is totally legit. You can make straws and packaging out of seaweeds now, oh. which is great for me as a waste stream. Right. So you take it and uh, there are just some great companies around uh, the country and the world that are that are doing, um, uh, you know, high level production of seaweed straws, which is so cool because plastics is a huge issue in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Here I can grow seaweed and replace plastics. Yeah, right, with partner partner companies. So, um, so you know, I say kelp is the soy of the sea, but not evil, right? Because it's like soy industry. 1950s sat down and was like, no one's going to eat soy in America, so let's put it in everything, and it is in everything. So really? we're going to do the same thing. Like we're going to take our kelp and weave it through all these different industries, which has an incredible carbon impact because we have such a low footprint. Like the more we can get our ocean based vegetables into other industries, it has a drawdown effect on uh, carbon. So we could be eating it and not even really know it soon. You got, yeah. Hide hide the gross stuff, right? Like hide, hide the peas, you know? So what what's kind of the uh, the distribution, I guess, of how much is going to food and, you know, plastics and all, you know, fertilizer or whatever it is? Well, that's what it, it depends farm to farm year to year. So it depends like some some years you'll get, you know, 70 percent food grade out of there where, where and you, you want that. It's a higher price, you know, mm-hmm. for, um, right. 
and then you'll you'll do fertilizer um, and bioplastics with that thirty percent. Other years it'll be like you'll get a you'll get um, uh, like herring will set on your kelp, say uh, up in Alaska, herring row, and that makes pock marks. And then it's not great for food. It's like it creates all these sort of like it scars it. I see. Well, that's really good then for fertilizer. So you'll most of your crop will go to fertilizer. So it's really important when you come into the industry to have like, like a whole leaf strategy mm-hmm. so that every year you can be balancing um, uh, balancing that out. So it's right. very, the answer is it's very inconsistent. Okay. That's what the challenge is. The other challenge with seaweed is you got to get it uh, processed within about the first 12 hours Whoa. or else it really starts to break down. So, and that is expensive. Like, Getting it from the docks and heart and processed in mass in such a short period of time, it's a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Man, oh man. Um, and then what's the story with, uh, with like cows eating kelp and uh, reducing methane? Is that happening or what's, what's going on with that? Yeah. So um, there's two things. One is, you know, cattle have and deer and all sorts of sheep have always eaten kelp. Uh, it's a, I've got pictures actually up in Maine and the Hebrides Islands where farmers would take their, their, their uh, livestock and leave them on uh, rocky shores and they'd um, uh, just eat kelp and it would actually change the flavor of, so you kelp raised beef was like the highest praise, uh, like priced beef in France. Wow. And, uh, and no one I know anywhere in the world is making a kelp raised beef. Like somebody needs to do it. Like forget grass fed beef. Like we'll blow it up. We'll blow it off the table. But so there's that. But then there's another type of seaweed, asparagopsis, that if you feed it um, to cattle, you get a 58% reduction in methane output. Um, and you only need to get, give it 2% diet of asparagopsis. So methane, as you know, is like, you know, the great, powerful, dangerous uh, greenhouse gas. And it's a, it's a major um, uh, challenge with, with cattle operations. So, you, so a slight bit of feed, you can have a massive climate impact. And I mean, I mean, that's part of what's nice about this and that I was, my farm was destroyed by climate change. And now I can be a piece of the puzzle of the solution, right? So my kelp soaks up five times more carbon than land-based plants. Like whenever I take my seaweed and I get it into the soil on a land-based farm, that captures carbon, right? And, 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 um, uh, and that's a wonderful thing that I can be a climate farmer and sort of part of a solutions-based economy in my own small way. Mm-hmm. Man, that's crazy. And so it, to your knowledge, is that being, are cows being fed kelp now? Uh, 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 oh, absolutely. It's come out of trial. There are a couple of companies that are producing commercial uh, grade feed. Absolutely. And so what's funny is that although it wasn't done for environmental reasons, um, in San Diego in the 19, early 1900s, there were 1,500 workers processing fertilizer and cattle feed out of wild kelp for a thousand Midwest farms. So like this was something that was done because the land-based farmers knew that these nutrients were things that would um, uh, have, have important effect. Like if you feed, there's long tradition and now that's improved by science that people fed kelp to their pigs and you, and you'd have a higher, like in uh, piglet mortality would drop. And this is what all the old time farmers knew. Well, then everybody did some science and it turned out to be true. So this land and sea connection, like this, this looping of the nutrient loop is something that's been going on for the longest time was, you know, many ways we're just science is just catching up with it. Yeah. 
damn, man, this is so cool. There's so many benefits of it. It's so exciting when you really jump into it and, and you learn that, you know, can reduce, you know, the methane and soaks up carbon. And then it's, and then it's, it's, uh, it's pretty healthy for humans to eat too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, it's packed full of vitamin C. I mean, to be, you know, like you're not going to get everything out of kelp, but if you look at the sea vegetables, you know, like a nori has more um, uh, iron than red meat, right? And like they pack, all these things are packed full of omega threes. It's the only place you can get, um, uh, uh, like you know, besides fish and seaweeds that are packed full of omega threes because fish eat the seaweeds. I mean, like that's how they get their yeah. omega. Like it's an original um, use of it. So yeah, I mean, you know, I, it wasn't towards the end of the book that I realized that. Um, you know, there was an entire lost culinary history in the West of eating seaweed. So it was an Irish and Scottish bar snack. It would, everybody, they'd serve it to people because it would make them drink more, right? Um, uh, the French and the Italians did a lot of fermented dishes with it. There was, um, people used it for breads. There was the kelp highway that went on the entire, um, uh, like up through Peru, where migrations tracked kelp and you can find seaweeds like 100 200 miles in in the cooking areas and stuff like that like it's wow. been poor and then mcdonald's had a seaweed burger in the early 1990s for five years um that became the national bur- the bur- official burger of the national basketball association wow. it was called the clean sandwich right um <laughs> so this is something that's been you know eaten uh, before it just got pushed off the plate really by soy went on his soy and meat. Really? Okay. So is it starting to come back now? Are we, are you seeing more and more of it being, you know, pushed onto plates? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, it's like driving a van and all you see is vans. So I see a, right. a lot, but, um, but yeah, I mean, um, demand has definitely gone up. I mean, the, the benefit is that we're in this great culinary moment with chefs. I mean, who would have guessed that America would be this, you know, hotbed of good, good, you know, deliciousness. Right. And it really is. And so I've got a bunch of recipes in the book done by some chefs. And one of them is barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. And think about that. Like you get the heat of the barbecue sauce, that roundness of parsnips, the crunch of, of the breadcrumbs. And you don't think twice that it's kelp, right? right. It's just delicious. So we tapped into these chefs who specialized in make, making vegetables unhealthy to get people to eat vegetables and shift taste. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly was the sort of our, 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 uh, our sweet spot. So we've had, um, uh, yeah, a lot of the value added companies are, are really benefiting and plant-based burgers is, is a course everywhere big and it's, a um, most of them already use seaweed. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Cause that's, that seems like the, uh, most likely way that you know people in my life would start to eat is if it's just kind of included in the food that they're semi used to eating you know because i mean can is i shop at trader joe's but i don't i think they sell like a seaweed chip type of thing but i don't know if they is that is just like plain seaweed being sold to use as like a cooking ingredient i mean they do it at costco and things like that but i i you know there will always be a segment that you can push to to eat it, but, um, you know, in that way and cook with it, but, um, as an ingredient form, it's so easy to work with. And, um, you know, we can make a, I think we were making a 40% kelp, 60% mushroom burger. This is a bunch of years ago. 
um, with kelp jerkies and bouillon cubes, chicken replacement bouillon cubes, because kelp is packed full of umami, right? It's a flavor enhancer, natural flavor enhancer. So mm -hmm. we just make these basic cubes that you can use. So these things are very approachable to people. And, and, and but I think that's the key to, I mean, you got to break out of the, like the, again, the Brooklyn fetish market, you know, for food that like is looking for the, the next weird bug to eat. Right. Yeah. Um, are you in okay. Brooklyn? I don't know if you're in Brooklyn. What's that? Are you in Brooklyn? No, no, I, I'm on the other coast. I'm in, in LA. Okay. So yeah, I've been to Brooklyn twice, but. I was like, geez, I got to back off a little bit. Right. <laughs> Everyone's like, guy, this guy talks about Brooklyn all the time. <laughs> um, so let's, can we jump into kind of, you know, how to start your own ocean farm if people are, because that's kind of the whole thing is you're trying to encourage people to, to do this now, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, we actually, Greenwave, the nonprofit, its job is, uh, you know, its mission is to train the next generation of ocean farmers. And we have one part of our programming that's kind of high touch, which is targeted to indigenous communities and fishermen directly uh, impacted by climate change. We just helped start the first indigenous owned seaweed hatchery in the country. Um, we work with the Maori in New Zealand, you know, like just all over um, the place. But then we have a low touch platform that's actually just coming online, which gives folks open source tools to design and plan their farms, budgets. Uh, you know, gear buy lists, also permitting resources, all sorts of stuff. And we, we did that because we've got 6,000 people on our waiting list for training programs. And I was like, wow. there's no way we're going to train all these people. So, and this is pre COVID luckily enough, like, okay, let's start moving all this stuff online and figure out how to train people online. So um, that's going to be the beta versions coming out uh, in, a, in, in about a month. Uh, which is great. So that's one place to start to bring with. Um, the, uh, the, the other thing is, you know, you want to go down and find out who owns the water, uh, you know, in front of you. So here in New England, it's basically the town owns the first couple miles. So you lease grounds from the town. Then the state owns past that. And then past six miles, the federal government owns. So you want to go explore, figure out like, okay, can I get a lease? How do I do that? Um, as sort of step, step, uh, step one. And then, um, step two is to like, just get a little bit of gear in the water. Like, cause you have to find out, is it a good place to grow? Does the ocean want you to grow there? So you get a little bit of gear, just some buoys, some anchors, um, get a bit of seed and, um, uh, just see what happens on, mm -hmm. on, uh, on your lines. And on, you find this in the Greenway website, but like you want a certain amount of growth per foot of line to make sure, because like if you get one foot, uh, I mean, one pound per foot, that's not enough to make a successful farm mm -hmm. per acre, right? The numbers won't work out. Like you've got to have a minimum of three pounds per foot. So you just start small and you're building out uh, from there, but you don't have to be a farmer. Like we, you know, you, we need more hatcheries in the country. So if you want to start a hatchery, we need tons of entrepreneurs are starting value added, uh, you know, companies, uh, food and fertilizer and bioplastic uh, uh, companies. We need policy experts to imagine like, okay, what is this ocean zoning going to look like? And right? as, as it becomes bigger um, and bigger, we need economists, we need scientists to stay ahead of the climate curve. Like I wish we had whole universities that were just dedicated 
to pumping out because we're having to train everybody now. Like I, there's no one I can hire that knows how to do hatchery, kelp hatcheries. I have to right. train every single one. Right. I got no bench. So yep. we need a, we need a bench. Yeah, man. I mean, it, it, and so like, I'm just kind of thinking, cause like, I'm like, this is something I could do even. It sounds awesome. You know, yeah. is, is it, uh, like, can it be done sort of anywhere? I mean, or like you said, you kind of need to test the area, but like, can I do it in the, you know, off the Pacific here in Southern California? Is that happening? Yeah. So in the Port of San Diego has a whole program. Oh. Um, and also in Long Beach um, of growing six, six, five different kinds of seaweeds as a reforestation project, right? Oh. Because I want to say this, you can both farm, but you can also just reforest. So Greenwave has a, project up in Humboldt with which has um acreage in just to do a per acre cost to replant the kelp forest right so and that has value if you're capturing carbon and stuff like that like that should have economic value so um in California we're seeing quite a bit of restoration reforestation happening um and uh, absolutely in California you need to get through the coastal commission and state waters but it's a great place to grow um, and there used to be, um, like millions of, of, uh, like you, you look at the kelp forest that used to be in California, it's just stunning. And now in Northern California, 90% of kelp forests are gone. And those used to extend all the way down to, uh, at, you know, uh, way past San Diego. So now absolutely the water temps are good. Uh, and the, the water quality is great for farming in the West coast. Cool, man. So what's, yeah. what can, uh, like, if you're looking to get into this, what can you, what do you need to expect as kind of an investment or how to get started? And then what can you expect to make from it? Yeah. Yeah. So it really depends on where, and it really depends on where mainly because of, but honestly, the depths of the water. So the more shallow it is, the less expensive it is. Cause you don't need big, I've got some folks in long Island that are growing 15 feet of kelp and four feet of water. It's just crazy. Wow. So they just like wade out in their boots to farm kelp, right? Huh. So that's cheap. I grow in about, uh, uh, I'm only at about 20 feet of water. And so my farm t- costs about 20,000 bucks to get up and running for like a 10 acre farm. And you, uh, and you can yield. So if you take a 10 acre farm, let's say out here in, in my farm in New England, you can, I always get this wrong, um, uh, uh, net, not gross, but net uh, uh, $100,000 or more. Like that's the, that's about the, the number. So it's a good way. It's hard. I mean, you know, I'm breaking ice off the gunnels with sledgehammers and stuff. I mean, you know, in the, in sure. the winter, it's hard work. You, you earn that money, but completely now on the West coast, um, you're dealing with much deeper depths. So depths, so the, the expense goes up. So you're looking more at like, depends there, but like even more like 50 grand startup costs. Um, and then on top of those, you'll need some sort of boat. Right. right. So, um, but like, you know, I started with a 17 foot boat that I got for like, I think it was 600 bucks. So start small. And then once you start making money, you know, invest in the business as you're you're growing up. So I'd say 20 to $50,000 startup cost, depending on where you are in the country um, is what you need to, to get up to a scale where you're bringing in income. Yeah. And so what you kind of mentioned it like the work, but like what, yeah, what's the, what's kind of your daily life like what's the time requirement on it yeah so uh it it depends on the species like different yeah. species are more labor intensive um kelp is not very labor intensive um but the more you 
check it and sort of care for it, the higher the survival rates. Um, so, you know, I like to be on the water three times a, a week in the winter is a good, a good amount of time. Usually go out for about a, um, you know, four or five hours, um, at a time. And then, you know, on land, you're rigging gear and fixing stuff. So, you know, it's a, it's a, um, and, and certain times a year you're working, you know, seven days a week during harvest season and seed, seeding season and things sure. like that. But, okay. um, yeah. No, that makes sense. And then, so is this something that, because uh, with Greenwave and what you guys are, you're, you're focusing on kind of the, you know, small farmer, or like individual person or, or group of people, right? Is this, is that kind of what the goal is for that? Or is there opportunity for like, you know, a bigger company to come in and do big things? Or are you trying to avoid that? Well, I mean, our, we'd rather not, I mean, I don't want to be responsible for a thousand acre banana plantations in the ocean. Like that's not really what I dream of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we're already seeing big, big companies come in, leasing grounds, planting massive farms like that is happening. And I think it's up to the food movement and, and other folks to say like, okay, which one do we want? Right. I'm good. We're going to build our model and our model is a reef model. It's not like it's unscaled. It's, you know, 25 to 50 farms in an area. A, sea, a, sea, a processing hub and a hatchery and then a ring of entrepreneurs. It's a reef. And then you replicate that reef. Well, that 25 farms can produce easily, easily 2 million pounds of kelp in five months. Wow. Right? So that, you know, that, and that's just kelp. Um, like an easily can do that. Um, uh, so networked production can really add up to scale. So it's not choice between big or small. It's like what kind of scale do we want? Right. Um, and I like network production because, you know, benefits are distributed. They don't concentrate at the top. There's not vertical integration. Like all the things I get excited about in this sector is like, we get to build a system from the bottom up, right? We get to do food right to make sure we don't privatize our seed to make sure like folks that have just been left behind in the industrial revolution who were excluded like black and brown folks, making sure that we do polyculture, not monoculture, like all these principles we can embed into the DNA of it. Now, big corporations might take it and completely screw it up. but like, we're going to try our route. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, that's, that's all I can do. I'm, right. I'm fine. If I die failing, I got no problem with that. Dude, but I mean, yeah, you're trying your best. I love that you're you're learning from the mistakes of other industries and things in the past. And I, I like the route that you're on and, and what you guys are doing at Greenwave, man. It's it's awesome. It's really encouraging and and fun to watch too. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Um, so let's. I think for people listening who are like into this, let's give them some resources of where to go, where to get your book, where should we send people? Yeah, great. So greenwave.org is our nonprofit. Lots of information on there. Uh, you can poke around and, and more and more is going to be added over the next uh, few months as we roll out the platform. Um, the book is Eat Like a Fish um, and get that, you know, lots of local book uh, uh, booksellers um, that you can get it from. And um, uh, there's some recipes in there and it, it actually won the Beard Award for writing uh, uh, last year, which is Right on. Congrats. Um, uh, uh, which is great, but it, it's a salty tale, you know, like there's probably an age bracket in there somewhere. Um, uh, but um, so like, you know, careful of homeschooling. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, 
And then if you go to GreenWave, there are a bunch of ways you can engage and get involved. You know, you can donate to support some farmers getting trained. You can hold house parties. You can um, uh, help on policy issues, things like that. So uh, mm-hmm. I really encourage everybody to engage in some way. Yeah, man. That <laughs> I was reading about the house party idea. That's such, that's such a good idea. I'm going to do that because I've been telling all my friends about this stuff. So I'm going to I'm going to make them come over for a house party and, and cook awesome. some, some seaweed, something. Yeah. 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 That sounds awesome. Uh, damn. Well, this is great, friend. Uh, anything else we should that you want to, you know, impart on people or share or, or anything like that? Or did we do a good job of covering stuff? No, I think we covered. I just like, you know, we started about what a fisherman is. I just like we've got a climate crisis. But I think part of one of the keys to solving the cli- climate crisis is solving this sort of cultural crisis of meaninglessness. Like we need to create jobs that are soul filling. Right. And that's what I like about this. You know, I come from a culture where people write songs about our work, right? Songs about fishermen, right? And that's what we want. We, we, want, we want like jobs with poetry and meaning. And I feel like if we, can, if we can tap into that, that sense of agency of all of us together with meaning solving the climate crisis, then this becomes a really good time, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's really exciting. I think that's my takeaway. Like, the climate crisis is is is, is um, uh, uh, like it's a it's a it's it it, it it it's a moment where we need to think about like the soul of people at the same time in order to solve the environmental challenge. Right, love it. Cool. Well, thanks again, Brent. Appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Good stuff. Good stuff, huh? Am I right? Isn't that exciting? Like all the benefits that uh, ocean farming has, that it can do for us, that we can eat it, that it can, you know, be cheaper and save the, all the global warming issues in the planet. I, I I just love it so much. I'm so excited to watch and see where this goes in the future. So thank you to, to uh, Bren for being on here and, and sharing that information with all of us. Thank you to you for being one of those people he got to share the information with and listening to the end of the episode and hearing me talk right now so that's that's what i gotta say i gotta thank you for that and uh that's the end of the episode i'm travis DeRose. you can email me at travis at curiosityness.com with your thoughts and ideas and feedback and stuff like that whatever you want to say i'll listen and um i'm on instagram at trav DeRose, and uh i'll see you in episode 98 or almost to 100 okay bye